0: because technology is not neutral, it has cultural effects, it has social effects, it has uh, environmental effects, it has economic impact. And so when we build it, we need to kind of not develop this tunnel vision and only look at the sort of technical aspects. We need to look, understand that creation is multi-aspectual, that there's all these other sort of things going on um, in order to design responsibly, right? Um, And I think a lot of the problems that come out in engineering are due to a lack of thinking about the broader implications about things, only thinking about the technical aspects uh, in isolation.
1: Welcome to What Would Jesus Tech? A podcast with someone working in big tech, that's Joel, and someone working in pastoral ministry, that's me. Um, just We're trying to help Christians imitate Jesus in our technological age. Today, we want to make sense of not simply why Christians should build technology, but how. How would an engineer or a designer do this? Our guest today believes that the Bible gives us design principles— You could say that there is actually a ton of relevance in in how the Bible talks about technology, how we should build buildings, design apps, even leverage AI. Um, That is Dr. Derek Sherman. Um, He is no longer a senior engineer, a project manager or a design engineer. He used to be Um, like my co-host, Joel. um, Derek actually got his engineering degree at the University of Waterloo. Um, doing co-op and all that that life there. But unlike oh, Joel, yeah. um, after working in the industry, Derek went on to receive his PhD in electrical engineering. He's been the professor of computer science at Redeemer University and now Calvin University. I just say all this to, to get to the point that Derek really knows technology. He literally has patents, engineering patents in his name. Um, but he also understands technology theologically. He's written a couple books. Um, and so today we're kind of focused in on his latest book that he co-wrote with a few others on a Christian field guide to technology for designers, uh, for engineers and designers. Uh, So thank you, Derek, for taking some time to talk with us today.
2: Yeah, thanks for inviting me. It's a delight to be here. Yeah, I'm very excited to have you on the podcast because a lot of our conversations have been around, um, you know, the theological implications of what we build. But this book was one of the first to figure or, or give me some foundation on like, how do I build in the right way? So
0: yeah, hopefully
2: thanks. some of our listeners can walk away with that.
0: That wasn't part of the Waterloo education, was it?
2: No, not at all. Yeah.
1: Well, just to begin, why don't we start with some speed questions to help listeners get to know you and just some, some okay. quick takes. Um, so what is Pea Spice and why did you write a book on it in the 90s?
0: Oh, wow. Now you're reaching back. Yeah. Yeah, PSpice is a uh, circuit simulation uh, software. PSpice was a version for the PC, um, and uh, and I wrote a, a textbook, co-authored a textbook with my master's supervisor from Waterloo, uh, Raymond Ramshaw, on a book about PSpice simulation of power electronic circuits, which was which was somewhat unique. Spice was designed for. Uh, Integrated circuit, um, circuit analysis and simulation and design. And we were using it for, for power electronics, you know, power MOSFETs and IGBTs and, um, you know, H bridges and three phase bridges, things that are basically at the heart of electric vehicles and, and modern power electronics and infrastructure, uh, to simulate and understand those things. And SPICE ended up being actually, even though it was made for, Integrated circuits ended up being a really good program for doing power electronics simulation as well. So we, I, I wrote a book together with my with my master supervisor on that because uh, cool. my master's degree at Waterloo was actually in the topic of electric vehicles, uh, and mm. uh, that was before electric vehicles were cool. Uh, Interesting. So, um, and, and and there wasn't any of the stuff that you find now i mean waterloo's now got a huge infrastructure for uh, electric vehicles and green vehicle design and back then there was there was none of that and uh and i, I wrote a thesis about a simulation of an electric scooter and this was before e-bikes and e-scooters and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff um and so i i sort of had this dream of uh <clears throat> of building that stuff but i was I was drawn more to teaching than, than, uh, than, you know, than, than working in, uh, in high tech startups. So I eventually slid into teaching, but that was a, that was a dream of mine back in the day. Um, very cool. Yeah. Um,
1: other, other quick questions. Do you prefer living in the, in the U S or in Canada?
0: Oh, well, I'm going to get in trouble here, but I think people will, will, will forgive me if, if, if they, if they, uh, if they hear me say that I, I, I'm, uh, I'm partial to my home country of Canada, um, partially because that's where all my family still resides. We have four children. Uh, they're all now in Canada. Uh, the youngest one's studying uh, there, and the others are just starting their careers. But um, um, and that's where my parents are and my siblings. So Canada is my home and native land. But uh, but uh, I've appreciated the opportunity to teach and to write and and, and have a little bit of a opportunity here in the States to sort of do my work further. There aren't that many Christian universities in Canada. You could count on one hand, maybe two hands, the number of comprehensive Christian colleges in all of Canada. Uh, Whereas I think within an hour's drive of Grand Rapids, Michigan, you've got about as many Christian colleges just in the neighborhood here. So uh, it's a very different context for doing Christian scholarship. And that's one of the things I was drawn to. I wanted to do distinctively Christian scholarship in engineering and that's not really recognized at a secular engineering school. You can't you can't write books about faith and engineering and, and get tenure, um, as far as I know. So uh, so I'm really grateful for Calvin for being able to be in a place where they support and uh, encourage and recognize Christian scholarship distinctly. So that's, that's somewhat
2: unique, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it it just reminds me like there's a burden on my heart for the education system over here, and yeah. I know it's not part of this podcast, but maybe we can change that yeah, where yeah. Canada isn't this place where there isn't that much opportunity. So,
0: yeah, and I would quickly add that the Christian colleges in in the U.S. and and there's other secular ones as well uh, believe strongly in in uh, liberal arts approach to engineering. So our engineers take philosophy, they take theology. They take Western civilization. They take history. They take social sciences, in addition to their heavy engineering load. So we have a you know fully certified ABET certified engineering program. Our CS program, computer science program, is also fully ABET certified, uh, but our students are still sort of ushered through a lot of liberal arts courses. So they actually. I think are shaped uh, a little bit more broadly, a little more holistically, um, and we probably get into this later on, but when you create a technical artifact, it's not just a technical artifact, it's a cultural artifact. It has political, justice, environmental, I mean, all these sorts of things. And you, you need to be aware of those things. And if you're just learning bits and bytes, you can sometimes create a, create a kind of tunnel vision, but, but I, mm-hmm. I'm sure we'll get into that later on. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: Um, are you related to Egbert Ag- Sherman?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Good question. Uh, Egbert was actually one of the people I started reading, uh, about faith and technology. He is one of the, um, earlier, uh, figures. He's still living in in the Netherlands. He's retired now. Um, one of the early early writers about faith and technology, I would say, um, going back decades. But uh, the answer is no. Although I have visited him and we do correspond, and he claims to have traced our, our family tree way back and somewhere in the distant murky past, we may be related, but uh, but uh, not not closely at all. But uh, but Egbert was a, was an important figure in uh, in faith and technology dialogue. I think, especially in the reform tradition. Going back to the you know, the seventies and sixties and eighties, and um he was a he, he sort of was a pioneer in starting the conversation.
1: Hmm. Very cool. Um last quick question. I don't know if you can answer this one quickly, but what is a parapet <laughs> and why is it so important?
0: Oh, oh yeah, yeah. We make mention of this in uh um in our book. Uh, it's one of the other authors who wrote that chapter. It's um, it's a railing, right? So Deuteronomy has this has this sort of curious voice—a uh, verse where it um, where it instructs. I think it's Deuteronomy where it instructs. Uh, you know that when you construct a house, make sure there's a parapet around your roof. And uh, what's interesting is 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 that's an indication that part of loving your neighbor is to build uh, things in a safe way, so that your neighbor isn't exposed to um, to, to dangers or to uh, risks. Um, What's also interesting is it doesn't say enclose your roof in a cage so that no one can possibly ever, you know, um, uh, defeat the safety mechanism. A railing you can still climb over, so it, it also implies personal responsibility, right? You're, you're you're to build a railing to avoid people from accidentally falling, uh, but the but people have to be wise and not. Climb over the railing, or, or, or do anything else that that would put themselves at risk. But it, it's an interesting verse because it just gives a hint at the fact that you know when you're building, uh, part of an ethical biblical approach to that is to think about you know the safety and well-being of your end user. Um, so uh, so yeah, that that verse is quoted in one of our chapters. Yeah,
1: mm-hmm. yeah, and the book is is specifically in the title. You know, there's lots of technology books written even generally for technologists, but this book, it says for engineers and designers. Why those two categories in particular?
0: Yeah, you know, if you look, there's been a, a, maybe this isn't the right word, but a glut of sort of books about, you know, technology and faith over the last decade, especially. And a lot of them are kind of in the category of, you know, how your phone's changing you and, and, and how we need to be careful. And those are great, those are prophetic. They let Christians know that technology is not neutral; that it has an impact on us. Um, <clears throat> and and you know there, there's also classic books that go back to Jacques Ellul and Marshall McLuhan, these sort of media ecologists. Um, and and if you read only those books, you get a bit of a pessimistic view of what technology is about. Um, you know, it, it highlights a lot of the pitfalls and the troubles, um, which is which is correct. There are pitfalls and there are troubles with technology, and, and technology poorly designed. Um, can can actually cause a lot of, uh, a lot of mayhem. So um, things can run amok. But the question is, well, you know, if you read these as an engineer, the question is, how then shall we engineer, right? I mean, the question is, um, you know, um, given all of these challenges in our technological society, uh, how should we design so that things are better, so that we can be more thoughtful? Um, and those books are more harder to find. And books, more specifically, that have practical sort of frameworks and advice for how you go about designing uh, are even more rare. Uh, Egbert Sherman, I think, uh, contributed to that uh, early on. But those books are relatively hard to find. And all three of the authors of this this book, um, myself included, teach in uh, Christian universities or have taught in a Christian university and so our job you know our job description is to integrate faith and engineering uh, and, or computer science and so um, we found that there was really very little materials out there to to give to our students to not only make them realize that technology is not neutral and there's problems with technology but also to say how then shall we engineer how then shall we code how do we do this in a way that's God glorifying? How do we do this in a way that's responsible? Uh, and so we sort of sought to write a book that would sort of serve, uh, I guess our first audience we we're thinking about is sort of first-year engineering students uh, who are thinking about, okay, what does it mean to be a Christian engineer? But our, our secondary audience was, you know, actively working engineers um, to kind of speak to them, to think about what is it that they're doing and, and how to do it thoughtfully, so. Um, so, yeah, that, that's sort of how it came about. And so we, we tried to include um, helpful frameworks for thinking about how to do design. Um, mm. And so, yeah.
2: Yeah, I think that touches on what I've felt a lot. Me and I'm sure many other engineers that you, you've spoken to over the years is that we go to conferences and events. And like the large majority of content is around the, the concerns and pitfalls of technology. And working in that space, you're like, okay, well, there is very limited content out there to say, like, well, what should we do? How should we build it? So that is also, like, part of what caused me to talk with Andrew and say, like, this is a need in our community. We need to, like, start this podcast because if there isn't content out there, we have to start creating that content. So when I you know found this book, Andrew actually recommended it to me from someone else he had, had a conversation with um, previously on our uh, podcast. Um, I I was really excited. I, I read it in one sitting on a flight down to Silicon oh. Valley and on on a plane you know just fully immersed. Um, and it was really good. I think definitely I'm a product manager now, so. While I do have an engineering background, my focus is on building products and how to build. So there's a lot of product management frameworks, and uh, you know we'll talk about uh, design principles here and design norms. But that was really valuable for me to have and put into my tool a toolbox of, you know, how do you understand users and customers, but also how do you think about the you know modal aspects of reality and stuff like that. So.
0: Yeah. No, that, that I I wish I had that book when I started as an engineer. As you mentioned, in the 90s, I worked actually in Waterloo for two high-tech startups. And uh, and I sort of struggled, you know, how do I connect the dots between my faith? I was a committed Christian, uh, but I had never been taught. And I guess I had never encountered that many books that helped me to kind of think about how to put those two parts of my life together. I was a real, you know... Um, enthusiastic sort of tech person. And I was also very committed to Jesus. And, um, and so uh, I didn't know how to connect those dots. So I, I wish I could teleport, you know, the book back to me, my <laughs> younger self. And in fact, if you, you know, I can tip my hand a little bit here. If you, The last chapter in our book um, is called Letters to a Young Engineer. And it's basically a set of fictional letters between an older professor, upper middle age professor perhaps and then a young engineer just fresh out of school um, and truth be told it's it's sort of uh inspired by my younger self and you know what i might say to my younger yeah. self um and um you know what 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 sort of words of encouragement I might give you know the, the letters sort of go back and forth with practical mm-hmm. A kind of advice about facing some challenges and different situations and how to how to frame uh, this young engineer is kind of you know fretting like, What does this work that I do have to do with the kingdom anyways you know I'm building a little circuit board that's part of a bigger chassis that's part of a bigger product and I seem to be a cog in a wheel and I don't seem to have a lot of influence and, and it, it's sort of this Dilbert mentality it's easy to feel a little bit like a Dilbert especially as a young engineer you don't normally start in positions of leadership and your your influence is, is you know, correspondingly limited. And sometimes in large corporations, you, you can encounter absurd kind of politics and, and other things. And um, and so, yeah, how do we see what it means to be faithful um, in that context? I say to some of my students, you know, who head off to Silicon Valley, you know, you're going to be like Daniels in Babylon. How, how are you going to be faithful in that context? How are you going to um, yeah, help the city to flourish, help your company to flourish, but also remain faithful um, and be a faithful presence in that context. So,
1: yeah, I think that was one of my favorite chapters that it was along alongside your sin chapter. But it, it was like, because going through the book, you're kind of like, okay, principles, principles, what does this look like? Practically lots of examples to get you thinking and lots of good questions that you might use. And then like all of a sudden you go through those letters at the end and you're like, yeah, this is the day to day. And sometimes you need the reminder of the principle to remind you of what to think about. Um, so, so going, Joel is referring to it already. I'll just read a quote from the book thinking about how to be an engineer and do it well. Um, and I think this is kind of in the context of ethics, although there have been other frameworks proposed for this purpose, including those known as value sensitive design and appropriate technology, Mm -hmm. the approach that all three authors believe can be especially helpful for Christians working in technology is the approach of design norms. Um, And so sometimes you're leveraging, you know, responsible technology and, and talking about that, you're kind of, saying at times, okay, well, well, there's a way to do this as a Christian using design norms that is going to be similar in some ways to your non-Christian coworkers, but it actually might go further in some ways. So can you help us understand design norms? What are they and why are they important?
0: Yeah. So first of all, I would say that um, there's a lot of overlap between value sensitive design, appropriate technology and design norms. Um, Design norms, I think, more explicitly come out of uh, Christian worldview thinking and Christian philosophy and, and biblical themes. Um, but design norms, I think, are, are generally recognizable by folks in the wider world as sort of just, you know, these are good things to pursue, right, for design. Um, but they start, uh, they, we actually um, uh, learned about them through Christian philosophical thinking. And so there have been Christian philosophers who've kind of looked at the nature of reality, uh, philosophers in an area called ontology look at what things are, um, you know, and and, and, uh, and looking at aspects of reality. And one of the things that uh, that that Christian philosophers begin with is the fact that all things cohere in Christ. So there, there there's there, there there's sort of this uh, unity. Uh, but there's also diversity, right? God made each thing according to its kind. You can't boil all of creation down to one thing, right? And that, that that's often a philosophical pitfall uh, called reductionism, right? So materialism, for instance, says it's all about uh, the random interaction of particles that explains everything in the universe, and everything emerges from that. Or you know, in social sciences, sciences you might you know find people who who hold to a behaviorism, right? It's all about stimulus and response, and that sort of explains everything. Uh, or people. And uh, biology might, might, might be tempted to kind of have a very reductionistic view about how life emerges and so on. So, so the, the, the design norms, and in, and in computer science, uh, let's just be explicit, you know, that there is this new, new um, sort of ideology called dataism, that the whole world is nothing but data. Um, and that everything can be explained by data, and that the only difference between a human being and a tomato plant is just different ways of processing data, right? It's very reductionistic philosophy. Hmm. So this, this Christian philosophy says that all things cohere in Christ, so there's unity, but there's also diversity, that God made each thing according to its kind, and if we look at creation, we don't try to explain everything in terms of one aspect of creation. Um, all of these things uh, sort of uh, cohere, and so we have you know aspects of creation like the biotic you have sort of you know um numeric aspects of creation you have sort of social aspects of creation you have aesthetic beauty as an aspect of creation justice these are all fundamental aspects of creation and they can't be explained in terms of uh, each other so uh, you know, feelings and emotions are not just uh, chemical uh, reactions. They, they involve chemical reactions, but they can't be just reduced to chemical reactions. You know, societal structures and so on can't be completely described with data. Uh, data is one powerful aspect of creation. A lot of things have numeric, well, almost everything has a numeric aspect to it, right? We can count, um, you know, how many people are on this podcast we could actually store all the waveform magnitudes at every you know millisecond in this talk and the pixel brightnesses of every single uh, part of our our images here but it won't capture the essence of the mm-hmm. talk uh, right? It's not reducible to just pixel values and and, and, uh, and audio magnitude waveforms, right? I mean, it's more than that. So that's so a philosophy that's non-reductionistic. And so what comes out of that, as you look at there's certain aspects of creation um, where actually human response is required, where humans respond to normative aspects in creation, things ought to be a certain way. And so justice is an example. We can ignore norms and justice, but as Christians, we're called to exercise freedom and responsibility in areas of justice and uh, beauty and aesthetics, right? We, we can build things that are um, beautiful or we can build things that are kind of ugly and frustrating to use. Uh, transparency. We can build things that are clear and things that are um, that, that don't bear false witness, that that sort of speak Um, clearly about things and, and, uh, uh, or we can kind of obfuscate things and we can make things uh, difficult or we can, we can, we can lie. So all of these sort of are areas where we exercise freedom and responsibility and the design norms look at these creational aspects and say, okay, how do these things come into play when we build electronic products or when we build software products or when we build, uh, you know, civil engineering chemical engineering you know engineering products Um, and so we give examples about how these different normative aspects come into play Um, and it's because technology is not neutral um, that that these things come into play Um, because technology is not neutral it has cultural effects it has social effects it has uh, environmental effects. It has economic impact. And so when we build it, we need to kind of not develop this tunnel vision and only look at the sort of technical aspects. We need to look, understand that creation is multi-aspectual, that there's all these other sort of things going on um, in order to design responsibly, right? Um so, so, so that's sort of where it comes from. And then we sort of give this framework and then we give sort of practical advice about how to think about these different things. Um, and I think a lot of the problems that come out in engineering are due to a lack of thinking about the broader implications about mm. things, only thinking about the technical aspects uh, in isolation. And um, and by the way this is another reason why a, a liberal arts background is really helpful for engineers and computer scientists they're, they're they're not just building a technical artifact they're building cultural artifacts that have sometimes profound implications so um so anyway that that's by way of introduction that there, there actually is some deep christian philosophy behind it but we're we're users of philosophy not developers so we we basically just uh you know use some of these frameworks and then provide ways that they can be helpful guides for engineers. Yeah. I
2: think it's especially important. It's, it's important generally, but even more so in a day where the products we develop are being sent all over the globe, right? It's like a very connected world right now. So even considering how your design and what you develop might change according to culture, which is, you know, one of the norms, it's, it's something that can easily be missed to someone who isn't as experienced in doing, uh, designing product or even like as thoughtful in designing product. And, you know, we it's very hard to design and develop a, a really good product, right? There's a lot of companies like nine out of 10 startups fail. A lot of products fail, even if they get off the ground. So to design something really good, to look back and say, you know, it is good, Is a challenging task, and it does take a lot more than um, many estimate it will. So I I think it's very helpful to have that understanding and, like you said, have a broader scope of the world. I think it's it's not just for engineers, but definitely for product managers who are working with engineers. I think they naturally get exposed to the other aspects of the business, like the marketing team, the sales team. They talk to the customers. So it's almost more normal for them to have that exposure versus engineers uh can easily fall into that sort of like tunnel like i'm just coding right i'm just yeah. waking up and building this and um yeah. especially in you know computer science right with um the physical sciences you're building something you may have to talk to machinists you have to like you know work yeah. with those type of things but even more so in computer science it's very easy to um just code you know get onto the terminal so it's very important i yeah. think
0: yeah, building castles in the air, but you know, I I, I think um, one of the neat things more more recently, neat developments in coding is the whole agile software development process, which deliberately brings customers into the design process early on. Right, it, it it's sort of. Uh, that this uh, mm-hmm. it, it, it um, iteratively brings in the customer to kind of give you feedback, uh, brings in real users. User stories are a big part of the design specification. So it isn't just an engineer on an ivory tower kind of you know designing a product in isolation from all these other sort of constraints. I think agile software development recognizes that um, the need for bringing in that more holistic sort of understanding, which which is built into the design process. Um, so, um, so some of these, some of these things we see, and in fact, these design norms, I would argue, and in fact, there are publications of people using the design norms that we we've, we've listed in this book in secular like IEEE publications, kind of showing how this. So, for instance, there's a paper on using these design norms for a smart grid. What are the implications of the design norms for a smart grid? Um, and, and, and people kind of look at these and, and I think they recognize them because they're creational. So, so even if you deny a God, even if you deny sort of a, a sort of a religious framework, um, there's something about creation <laughs> that sort of pushes back when you ignore these sorts of things, right? If, if you ignore sort of ecological aspects or aesthetic aspects or justice aspects, eventually there's consequences <laughs> sooner or later. Um, and so, I think a lot of people, even people who don't share a Christian worldview, uh, might might be persuaded to kind of consider these different design norms because um, because it's creational and it, it impinges on all of us. Yeah. And so, I, I tell my students too that this is these are things you could talk about. You know, like don't don't quote Bible verses when you're working with secular coworkers, but bring a Christian worldview to inform the work that you do. And and later on, when they see you as a trustworthy voice, you will be able to eventually give an account of your of, of the faith that animates you. But you know, uh, a lot of these ideas, I think, can help help companies to flourish. Um, and and you know, um, when, when we follow norms, then 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 we we bring shalom nearer. Um, is is one way to think about it.
1: Yeah, I've. Uh... I've enjoyed reading Herman Bavinck recently and his distinction oh, yeah. of Christian worldview and yeah. Christian vision or, or or, There's worldview and there's and world vision, vision yeah. you know, and the, the Christian compass unique... and the
0: map. Yeah. Yeah. The difference between yeah. a compass and a map. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. The map being you see everything, a compass is just pointed in one direction. Exactly. And so Christians have unique, um, you know, thinking toolkit, because we have a world view that encompasses everything, the analytical, the cultural, stewardship, justice. Yeah. we we don't have to reduce it down to that one thing he bovin talks about the mechanical view, and you can kind of hear that in in tech determinus of just like, mm-hmm. oh, we just need to tinker. And then the tinkering will solve things. And you can just think that it's all about the tech. The tech is the most powerful. And and Bavinck's like, no, you got to think about the organic. You got to think about these other yeah. aspects. Um, and so there's a real beauty to the Christian philosophy of the world and how we build. Um, kind of pushing back, though, in one in one instance is like, since technology is really so powerful, thinking about that agile design, thinking about customer input, Like AI, ChatGPT 5, is it going to be used on, like, can we really be testing that? Because it's going to have such negative impacts. Like, shouldn't there be more ethical considerations before launching? This is going back to an earlier point that you made. Um, But it even came out in the book for me that I'm like, are we taking too positive of an approach to all the technology things like, like clearly the book is advocating for thinking deeply and reflecting deeply. Um, and then it talks about agile and I'm like, well, isn't agile like a problem? (laughs) Um, isn't there flaws with agile because of the way that we're just introducing dangerous tech to people who might not know how to use it very well? Mm. Um, how would you respond to that concern?
0: Yeah, that, that's a really good question. Um, really quickly, you, you mentioned Herman Bavinck and mm-hmm. a lot of the cool theologians nowadays are, like, you know, citing Bavink. I you know, want
1: to be cool. I'm trying to Yes.
0: In. No, it's a sort of this reemergence of Bavink, which is really neat. And just just, just a quick aside, Herman Bavink uh, is uh, closely connected to Herman uh who is the person from whom we derived the set of aspects that inform our design norms. So the the Christian philosophy and theology espoused by Herman Bavink actually is... Um, is, is a close cousin of of the framework that we use and comes out of the same tradition, same Reformed uh, tradition that uh, that our design norms come out of. So seeing this sort of reemergence of Bavink and other Reformed writers has been really helpful because the, the neat thing about the Reformed tradition, if uh, and I'll lay my cards on the table, I come from a Reformed Christian visit, um, uh, background, is that we we, 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 we don't see, we don't see the world in a dualistic way. We don't say, well, there's sort of like church and faith and prayer. And then there's sort of like, you know, uh, culture and and uh, engineering and technology and, and never the twain will meet. You know, it's sort of this dualistic worldview that, that seeks to separate these things. And, and the one, I think, neat con- contribution of Christian, of reformed Christian thinking is that we see that all of life, right, um, comes under the lordship of Jesus Christ, which uh, which is just wonderful, right? There's, there's this famous quote from Kuiper, right? You know, there's not one square inch over the whole realm of creation over which Christ, who is Lord of all, does not cry mine, right? Um, another professor here at Calvin University, uh, Gordon Spikeman, used to say, nothing matters but the kingdom, you know, but because of the kingdom, everything matters. And and that sort of comprehensive Christian worldview was really exciting to me because then engineering also matters. If, if every square inch matters, then then engineering is a big part of that, Um uh, and so it, it, it you know this notion that that uh, all of life, this cosmic view of uh, of uh, Christ's redemption uh, is really exciting when we're working when, you know when we're not pastors or theologians uh, but we're we're encouraged by that that we can we can serve Jesus as a disciple in these other areas too. but you're also right um, we, we have to be careful that we don't get carried away in a triumphalistic kind of way that yeah we're going to claim every square inch and and so on. Um, we have to realize that, um, Sin also comes into the picture, so you know Herman Bovink and others, you know, talk about this this Christian worldview, which is defined by the biblical narrative, right? Which is creation, fall, redemption, right, and new creation, and these things I think provide a bit of a balance to 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 you know either overly optimistic kind of thinking or very very pessimistic thinking. Um, you know, the creation story tells that technologies, you know. Uh, part of the latent potential in creation. It's part of creation, so it's good. God called it good, but we don't stop there, right? Somewhere near the beginning, the human family fell into sin, and so the implications are that um, all human sort of cultural activities are also tainted by sin. You know, the whole creation is groaning, and so we see technology also reflects that. Um, Mm -hmm. But then there's hope in Christ, right? Christ came... um, Right. To, to, to bring redemption. And it's not just, you know, personal salvation, although that's that's essential. But, you know, this Colossians one sort of view of that, you know, all things being, you know, restored in Christ. All things were created through him and for him and by him and that he's reconciling all things. So that's exciting. That includes technology, too. But I think we have to be very careful uh, as as humans to recognize that it's not us who will usher in the new heavens and the new earth, right? It's not going to be by our efforts. Mm-hmm. So, so we need to kind of be balanced. We're called to be faithful. It's completely obedient to sort of pursue these things and and, and to develop responsible technology. Uh, but we have to be careful that we don't uh, don't see that as the as the path towards ushering in the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven it's not subcontracted to us um but yet Mm -hmm. we're still called we're still called to do this so that this is why i'm a little i i wince just a little bit when i hear words like redemptive technology yes we 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 could we can we can bring shalom nearer with technology but we just have to be careful when you use that adjective that you realize that it's not technology that will bring redemption right this is not the path um and uh, and so we have to watch out for these triumphalistic kind of excesses, and technology is no 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 more special than other cultural areas like music and cuisine and literature. I mean, these are all human cultural activities. So as 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 technicians, even though we're kind of seen uh, by the wider world as sort of the high priests of sort of one of the most important developments, mm-hmm. um, we also have to realize that we're you know we're we're called to be faithful and in my small corner and you and yours and that we leave, we leave the outcome up to Jesus Christ. And so, uh, so that needs to be the posture, but the area where we work is nonetheless important as partly because it has such a large cultural impact.
2: So yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, speaking on that cultural impact and even like thinking about how engineering is like applied sciences, I am looking for maybe some sort of idea on how we can kind of take these norms and these insights and start applying them into product creation. You know, for example, um, in the agile process as part of like the product scoping phase, before we say, Hey, we're going to build this thing. The, uh, product team or engineering team even goes through the design norms and says, well, let's look at all these aspects, right? Like the user story is like as a X person, I want this to do this. And that's like, you know, it's, it's good but it's definitely not as holistic, um, and incumbencing. Right. So there are definitely like a lot of people thinking about like, well, how can we scope building better? And like agile is like one sort of better way of doing it. But of course we're like always looking for more. And I think the great topic to maybe like do a thought experiment on is this AI revolution that we're having right now. Um, which is even more important to make sure we do right, you know, yeah. like compared to other technologies in the past it can yeah. have much bigger ramifications if we do it wrong. So, do you have any kind of suggestions on what might be like yes, we need to contemplate, contemplate these things, but how can we really make that part of the process?
0: Yeah. And and so you're right first of all that that the the agile software development process does not necessarily guarantee that all these norms will be will be followed. I mean, the one the one thing by consulting the user will hopefully help with cultural appropriateness, right? If you're going to write mm-hmm. software for a dentist office, you should talk to dentists and not just have coders doing that, right? If you're going to write software for education, you should talk to teachers uh, and so on. So that helps with cultural appropriateness. But of course, there's more norms, right? There's norms of uh, social norms, transparency norms, stewardship norms, and they can't be an afterthought. You know, so you can't um, can't develop a product and then kind of say, okay, let's uh, let's just look at the norms. It needs to inform the design process early on. And uh, I think another good development in, in engineering is um, an emphasis on sustainability. So sustainability actually meshes quite nicely with the uh, stewardship norm, right? The biblical norm of stewardship. So looking at looking at products from cradle to grave, understanding you know how materials are sourced and how they can be recycled, and and uh, and so on, and, and sort of the uh, energy footprint and carbon footprint, and I mean, a computing now green computing and and things like this are, are becoming even more important, uh, and so. Um, uh, so looking at those things. So those are areas where I think uh, people involved in tech are already uh, are, are already sensitive to. They're, they're creational things that impinge on us all. But yeah, there there's more that needs to be considered. So so one of them, you know, just the name, a few of the norms. There, there's the norm of delightful harmony. So delightful harmony has to do with the mending of form and function, right? So that you build something that's not only functional, but it's beautiful. Um, and so I think UX designers, um, you know, uh, um, in part uh, address some of these some of these normative concerns, thinking about uh, not just functionality, but about sort of the whole the whole experience and user interface. Um, you know, one of the philosophers here at Calvin, Nicholas Wolterstorff, uh, wrote once. You know, a, a good garden spade is not one that's just good at digging, but it's one that's delightful to use, right? And the way that it, you hold it in your hands and the way that it's constructed. Um, and I think that's something I didn't learn much about in engineering school. Um, you know, those are industrial designers who look at some of those things mm-hmm. in more detail, but, uh, but I, I think those are important. That's one way to love your neighbor is to think about, is to think about the, the delightful harmony, uh, building things that are beautiful. And this was something Steve Jobs was very good at, right? He had an eye for aesthetics, you pay for it, but it's a uh, they, they build beautiful devices. Um, mm-hmm. So so then, and that's creational beauty is part of part of the aspects of creation. Transparency has to do with uh, honesty and with clarity and openness and communication, and that can be with user documentation, that can be with how we communicate with our customers or our coworkers. Um, uh, it uh, it's also should inform our code. You know, I, I have one colleague who talks to our students and talks about the importance of well-documented code as a way of showing hospitality to the poor soul who has to maintain your code, you know, (laughs) next year. I mean, well, I don't know what the numbers are exactly, but roughly what, 20% of the effort is spent in development and the rest of the 80% are spent on maintenance, you know, like, uh, it's really important to kind of set a table, a hospitable table to the poor person who's got to like maintain your code. And so mm. good documentation is a way of loving your neighbor, too. And that's that's one aspect of the transparency norm. And then social norms. Right. How, how does our how do our technologies help us relate well uh, to people, society? I mean, social networking has shown you know, um, how when these things are ignored, uh, by driving, you know, people to come to websites for, uh, for engagement only, uh, the kind of destructive power that that can have. And so that's something they should have thought about. I, I think, I think there's more recognition now, right? The, uh, um, the humane technology project, you know, the social dilemma, uh, these are actually people in tech kind of going like, oh my goodness, what have we done? Right. They're sort of taking a second thought and try to think about what does humane technology look like? Um, so, you know, a lot of these norms that I'm mentioning, we, we can actually work together with people who are not coming from Christian backgrounds, but to think about the common good and building technology that's more responsible and, and more loving. Um, another norm is justice. Uh, I think someone like, um, I think Kathy O'Neill, right, who wrote Weapons of Math Destruction, right, talking about data science and how bias and algorithms, and this gets to AI as well, right, how bias in, in in our training data, even in algorithms, actually, how bias can um, um, can 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 actually bring injustice to certain populations and certain people, right? When it comes to you know who gets parole, who gets a loan, who gets a job, whose resume moves on to the next stage, all mm-hmm. of these sort of things, when they're automated, can be can can amplify bias, right? So uh, so that's the justice norm, right? Um, copyrights. Chat GPT again. This whole argument about uh, large language models and copyright, you know, and generative AI in general. How, how do we give due to the people who've created the training sets from which these things are riffing off of, right? Statistically speaking, so um, that's a justice issue, and I think as as Christians, we we ought to join that dialogue. And thankfully, there's places actually where we can join the dialogue. So you know, the 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 uh, IEEE has a has an ethics. Uh, um, branch to it, uh, groups. There's um, you know AI for good and data for good. There, there's actually these organizations that are sort of emerging, um, not necessarily you know uh, in many cases not not explicitly Christian or Christian at all even. But people kind of saying something's going on. We need to be thinking about our technology and how to do it well. I'm an advisor for another group called AI and Faith, and it's actually an interfaith uh, mm-hmm. dialogue between you know muslims and jews and christians and other world religions to think about um can we have a conversation amongst ourselves and think about whether they're whether the world religions and and and, uh, uh can inform this conversation about how we build ai for good and and what shape it ought to take and uh and and so i think i think there's an awareness about this now you know what shape that will take, and what 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 sort of shape these things ought to take in terms of regulations or practices, I think is is what needs to be hashed out. But yeah. the fact that it's not neutral, I think everyone agrees, right? The, the fact that mm-hmm. this technology is not neutral is. Uh, is actually a much much easier case to make and then the question is then yeah what do we do and Christians need to talk to each other so we need to have you know churches i think need to be reflecting on uh, on some of this and 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 wise people within the Christian sort of uh tradition need to be speaking into these things but also joining the wider dialogue uh joining mm-hmm. the table with with people from industry and and government and having a wider dialogue about how to do this well.
2: Yeah, I think think that's, you know, that's what Christians need to do is we need to lean in, especially Christians in technology. And I think, yeah, like you mentioned, having conversations with each other is a first step. But even, you know, I guess a month ago, I was speaking with Andrew. I'm like, you know, what about the church and AI? And Andrew's like, well, don't you know, there's actually this like position that all these pastors have signed on like what AI does. And I had, you know, no visibility into that. And I think one of the challenges is like, yeah, OK, if you go to your everyday engineer and you say like, yeah, the IEEE has this organization, there's almost this feeling of, well, I can't just like send a anonymous or a random email. Who am I going to connect to? Right. So maybe it's like you said, awareness, providing some of those links in, in this podcast so that people can take that action to be like, okay, I'm going to reach out to this. This is how I'm going to get engaged. This is how I'm going to connect because that often ends up becoming this like gap that people are like, well, I'm stuck here and it's too much effort. So I'm just going to go back to my day to day, which is already difficult as it is. You know, I don't have the mental energy to like, you know, push, which we should.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that's why, you know, podcasts like this and other organizations, I think are helpful because the church doesn't necessarily have the expertise to speak precisely into what shape, uh, AI algorithms should take, for instance, right? Um, you know, how to, how to remove bias from training sets. I mean, Pastors and churches don't have expertise on these things. And so uh, in, in, the, in the Reformed tradition, there's also this distinction in, in churches about the church as an organism and the church as an institution. So the church as an institution is the pastor and the congregation and the local consistories and, and councils and, and so on. And, and, and uh, so that, that's sort of the church as an institution. And, uh, and in Reformed thinking, they've often distinguished between the church's organism, which is the people who are shaped and equipped... By the gospel story in the church than to go out from the church and bring uh, bring salt and light into all these different human cultural areas of expertise. Um, and I think that we need organizations to help the church to navigate these sorts of things, right? To be able to bring together experts in bioethics and experts in AI and experts in, in um, uh, all kinds of different human cultural areas, uh, you know, social... Um, uh, social programs and thinking; these are all things that require expertise. Um, mm-hmm. And so, um, but it's the church that forms people by the gospel story, and then sends them out into these areas in order to be salt and light. Um, so, so yeah, I, I'm not so sure the church is equipped to speak about uh, exactly what shape algorithms should take, but it, it, it mm-hmm. can speak about justice, and it can speak about you know loving your neighbor, and it can speak about. Um, um, and making sure that we're thinking about the widow and the and, and the foreigner and the uh, you know and the orphan you know and, and making sure that we're thinking about vulnerable people and making sure that bias and you know so that so that when we build these sorts of things we're thinking about vulnerable populations so um, um, so yeah I find that that, that distinction helpful and uh, but yeah we need to engage in uh, you know um, with these wider bodies.
1: I've sometimes thought, and I think Joel, you said that this to me like a year ago in jest that like, uh, maybe businesses, tech companies, should hire theologians. Um, and I think I heard it some on some other <laughs> podcast the other day too. Like, how you know, in the same way you hire a UX designer to mm-hmm. consider the aesthetic aspect of your product, and so too do you see organizations hiring chief diversity officers, you know, t- in order to think through bias. Well, so too might they. Hire a theologian in order to come in, and I appreciate you, Derek. You're, you're. I joined a Facebook group like a couple months ago, is like AI and theology or something, and I like oh, yeah. see you engaging. Like you're, you're doing <laughs> this stuff. You're trying to interact and engage, and so thank you for that example. Um, one last question, uh, assuming you still have have time for this, oh yeah. um, you can take as much time as you need to answer it. Um, I loved the aspect of the book that talked about kind of science fiction dreams. You know, thinking yeah. outside of the day to day and and the importance of dreams, even. Um, so I guess I, I I'm kind of interested in what you think about the importance of that and any science fiction that you'd recommend. You know, in order to accomplish what you call for, um, that are you know maybe came out recently. I think of like that hideous strength by C.S. Lewis as yeah. a great, great. Fictional, but you know it speaks so powerfully um, to our desire for technology to solve everything and transhumanism. It speaks to that. And this yeah. is C.S. Lewis years ago, or Inside by Bo Burnham, or Everything Everywhere All at Once, uh, the movie that just came out last year. I think it was it was written um, by individuals who wanted to critique the internet, how it makes us feel like we're everywhere, doing everything all at once, and what that does to us, and and it's a critique of that. And so there's there's fiction and science fiction as well that can do this kind of stuff. Um, you talk about it a little bit in the book, but any movie recommendations? And feel free to riff on that however you want.
0: Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think this is where engineers need you know to join a wider dialogue with artists and theologians and philosophers. And, and what's neat in a, in a liberal arts Christian college, I, I actually hang out with philosophers and theologians. I'm not siloed in a computer science department. And I think you're right. You know, someone once said, um, you know, the artists get there first. You know, in some ways, thinking mm. about, you know, if you extrapolate what we're doing and where we're going. Someone else, I, I'm sorry, I don't have the precise citations here, but someone else once said that the the job of the good science fiction writer is is not to envision the automobile, but to envision the traffic jam. You know, like what what are the implications going to be for these new technologies that might emerge? And I think that can be helpful. I mean, uh, a lot of science fiction can show how things can run amok if we're we're not thoughtful, right? Or if we absolutize some technology or we allow it to to get out of hand. Uh, So I think the the, the science fiction writers can be prophetic in a way, right? And a lot of science fiction is highly philosophical. You know, you you look at, uh, you know, these are more dated references, but, you know, the the matrix and and uh and, and other other television and and movies of uh, sci-fi movies o- often uh, at the heart of the, of the story is the question of what does it mean to be human um you know it's sort of especially when you're looking at artificial intelligence and life and ro- robots and and these sorts of things these are you know enduring questions and recurring themes in science fiction um and it's kind of interesting you know science fiction is often dystopian right I asked my students, can you think of a utopian science fiction sort of movie? Hmm. Uh, and they scratch their heads. I don't know if you guys know of any, but, uh, I mean, maybe it's just dystopian movies make more interesting Many. plot lines. <laughs>
2: <right>? Yeah, <laughs> right. yeah. Contact, yeah. You know, we need
0: it. Know. It's sort of the Frankenstein narrative, right, that sort of recurs, the Terminator, right, who comes to, you know, you build technology, and then it turns on you, right? That's the Frankenstein, the Frankenstein narrative. Um, and so... Uh, so I, yeah, so I think that these stories can 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 be imaginative, uh, sort of thought experiments to see, yeah, how how well to put it in a Christian framework, you know, the consequences of sinful development of technology and where it can take us. Um, and so I I think th- I think these are all very very helpful. Um, I think we also have to be careful, you know, some, some of these dystopian views are based on a sort of postmodern view of technology that views it with just despair, right, uh, or, or almost a sort of, you know, extreme Darwinian sort of view where, where you know, eventually humanity is just going to be extinct and then the next most fit creatures will evolve and that will be AI and robots and they'll sort of eat us for lunch and then sort of move on um and uh you know are these transhumanist sort of views which which i think um uh you know seek a technological solution to getting free of our mortal limits and, uh, and and i think that's antithetical to a christian sort of view about what it means to be a human being fully alive i think that's something we have to watch out for um and uh, and the importance of our own um um, sort of embodied and fleshed, sort of uh, incarnation. You know the, the importance of bodies. You know that this idea mm-hmm. of downloading your brain into a computer and living forever. Um, you know that, that that some people look to is uh, is not what we are created for, right? I mean, we we the, the the biblical story has at its heart the incarnation of Jesus, who didn't send an email or a, you know or a hologram. He he came and he you know he he moved into the neighborhood to kind of. You know, uh, quote Eugene Peterson's sort of uh, opening to to John, right? Um, And uh, and I think that's real. That's that's an extraordinary endorsement of embodied human sort of um, physicality. And and I think you know an early church um, heresy was actually Gnosticism. This idea that the body doesn't matter. And I think some of our technologies can slowly lead us into into Gnostic ways of thinking that the body really doesn't matter, right? It's a um, so, so you know, there's sort of worldviews sort of built into these stories and into some of these technologies that we just have to be have to be um, um, aware of, and we need to be animated by the biblical story. That's where the church comes in. Our hearts have to be continually recalibrated uh, and to point towards the gospel sort of story, to point towards Jesus, so that all of these other sorts of uh, shaping factors don't don't misshape us. I think uh, one of my colleagues um, here at Calvin University, Jamie Smith, wrote a book called "You Are What You Love." I would mm-hmm. recommend that for 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 all tech people to look at, especially people like me who who love tech. Actually, right to to make sure that our technology doesn't have um, an outsized formative uh, sort of impact on us. That 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 you know, this goes back to Saint Augustine, right? You know. Um, that, that you you are what you love. That we aren't sort of primarily thinking things, but we're loving uh, people, and, and it's our hearts that shape us, right? Uh, there's that verse from Proverbs, uh, is it four? You know that uh, that everything you do, you know, guard your heart because everything you do flows from it, including our technological activities. Quite frankly, mm-hmm. um, our dreams, you know, are, are also shaped by our hearts. What do we love? What are we What are we animated by? Um, you know, there was a poet who once said that you know, in dreams begins responsibility, right? And that that has to do with shaping your heart and your character and your virtues. So that already at the sort of stage where we're we're sort of imagining new technologies, that they're they're shaped by a by the gospel story about what it means to love our neighbor and to care for the earth and its creatures. Um, to sort of cite another um, science fiction movie that I think is kind of cool, it's kind of a neat parable is is Wall-E. <laughs> right, right. Where we see human beings shuttled about in big lazy boy chairs and screens and sucking on slurpees, they're 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 just a shadow of a human being fully alive, right? And they've sort of destroyed the earth with 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 uh, pollution, and and these robots are left behind to kind of do the housekeeping and clean up, and uh, they're in these arcs. And uh, what's curious about that is that the robots are actually more human than the humans, um, you know, in terms of how they're portrayed. Mm-hmm. But the movie's kind of hopeful, too, because it shows, you know, at some point, you know, they they find a fledgling little green plant and they go back and you see the the possibility for the Garden of Eden and the responsibility and the stewardship that we were originally called to uh, becoming, you know, a possibility. And if humans respond to that, if they can, you know, there's this one scene where the captain's wrestling control back from the... From the AI that's sort of controlling the ship, can we take responsibility, not offload that to machines, but take our, our core responsibilities, uh, then we can flourish as people again. So I, I think these science fiction stories can really animate uh, animate us. Um, you know, Star Trek, I think, too, animated a whole generation of engineers and computer scientists. I was a bit of a Trekkie growing up, too. Mm-hmm. Um And the sort of early Star Trek was more optimistic, right? It was sort of this idea of boldly going where no man has gone before and, and, you know, new kind of. And and so in in a lot of the episodes in Star Trek, we see, um, you know, human beings by their wits. Uh, kind of, and their technology, kind of overcoming all of these obstacles and, and bringing peace and, and flourishing throughout the universe. Uh, I have a quote actually from from uh, one Star Trek episode in the in the technology in the future chapter, which sort of shows the, the the worldview of Star Trek and Gene Roddenberry, which which I found really interesting. You can you can find it in the, the future chapter, but um, but yeah, more 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 recently, it's been more. Um, pessimistic views of technology and and, uh, uh, dystopian sort of views. One sci-fi series that I'm watching right now, I I don't know how it ends, so I can't really speak about it, but um, uh, is uh, The the Silo. It's streaming on on, uh, Apple TV. It's called The Silo, and it's this dystopian future where people are kind of holed up in a silo, uh, and the outside world has been supposedly destroyed by... Um, environmentally destroyed and, and so on. And uh, and anyways, I'm only part way through the series, but it's it's that question about, you know, how can human beings flourish? What does it mean to be human? And, uh, and so science fiction is a wonderful way to kind of, and, and open up conversations with non-Christians actually too, right? Yeah. About, you know, what does it mean to be human? Um, these are sort of the, the questions that underlie a lot of these good science fiction sort of movies and, and stories. Um, mm mm-hmm.
1: Well, it's it's uh it's an imaginative book, but it's also a practical book. Um so you know, a Christian field guide. It really is a field guide. Um as we talked about, ways of thinking through design norms. There's a lot of questions in it, illustrations, ways that you might not think about the bicycle and electric cars <laughs> way back a hundred years ago. Oh, yeah. There's there's some cool nuggets of history in there that might change your perspective and then there's also just some practical ways of thinking about how do we build um and i'll note too that there's another book that derek has written shaping a digital world um that came out a few years prior um so i haven't had the chance of reading through that i heard you do a talk on it once at a faith Mm -hmm. tech gathering years ago and you kind of went through the biblical storyline you know again like seeing creation fall Redemption, consummation—like seeing all of those and not just one of those—is very crucial um, to the Christian story, right? And we live out of that story. Um, so, yeah, thank you for your work. Thank you for joining us today. This has been a fun conversation.
0: Yeah, thank you for having me. And I, I, I like, you know, what would Jesus tech? I mean, that—that's that, the question. How then shall we engineer? This is an important question. And so, uh, I'm grateful that there's resources like this to help people think about what does it mean to live responsibly in this brave new world so thanks for inviting me
2: yeah thanks Derek. really appreciate your work and you know the inspiration you bring hopefully there's a whole new generation of builders and engineers who think about building in a more holistic and christian worldview way
0: yeah may their tribe increase
1: amen amen so thanks for listening this has been what would jesus tech encouraging you to use and build tech to find rest and to glorify god thanks for listening Bye, everybody.
2: Thanks.